there was a lot of remarkable, innovative work done by fascinating, quirky, kind of stubborn scientists in the years leading up to 2020. So we were ready. No one knew it at the time. No one was sure it would be effective, but all that research paid off. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. When reports began emerging in January 2020 of a mysterious respiratory virus spreading in Wuhan, China, politicians, health officials, and scientists were unprepared for the global pandemic that was soon to follow. As the scale of the calamity unfolded, the world's best-known pharmaceutical companies had nothing in their arsenal to deal with it. The scientists and drug companies who mobilized an effective response were not the usual suspects. They were an untested group, and many operated at the fringes of science. BioNTech and Moderna were unknown to the general public, and until that point had not had commercial success. But when leaders from the two companies heard about the novel coronavirus, they each believed that they could crack its genetic code and devise a vaccine based on mRNA technology, which the companies had been researching. These unlikely scientists set out on a race to save civilization. Award-winning Wall Street Journal reporter Gregory Zuckerman tells this story in his new book, A Shot to Save the World, the inside story of the life-or-death race for a COVID-19 vaccine. I began by asking Zuckerman how he researched and wrote a book about this race while the race was going on. So I was kind of deep in my basement in suburban New Jersey, um, like most others, um, kind of uh, figuring out this new world of ours. And I started tracking those who were chasing um, a vaccine. And in some ways, it was a fun distraction for me from all the gloom and doom out there. Um, And I made a bet, as it were, on a few of the different approaches, uh, Moderna and mRNA and some others. And I said, um, I'm not sure they're going to work. There are good early signs, though. Let's see if it, if I could track it along the way. And basically, I, I talked to the scientists, the researchers, the executives, the investors uh, in real time. And um, the risk was kind of wasting my time and learning about some of these approaches. And, and it turned out they'd, they'd be unsuccessful. But, th- you know, I learned along the way. So I figured worst comes worst, I will learn a lot of science. So you decided at the beginning of the pandemic, you were going to try and bet on the winner, just as the yeah. horses had left the barn, essentially. Exactly. And it's not to say that uh, I, I got it all right. There were people that I talked to and um, they didn't manage to develop successful vaccines. But most of those who had early signs of a success did, did eventually uh, develop protective, um, effective vaccines. So it worked out well. So as I recall from those early days, many quarantines ago, um, the, the, the thoroughbred, the one that looked like it was going to win the race was Oxford, uh, the, the scientists out of Oxford who teamed with AstraZeneca. But they did not end up having the fastest horse here, did they? That's exactly right. And I, uh, I get into it in my book, A Shot to Save the World, and um, it's a surprise to many. So they were the early leaders. They got the first chunk of money from the U.S. government, even uh, over a billion dollars, um, because the U.S. government thought they'd be the most successful and, and earliest as well. They had an approach that had a little more uh, experience, a little more, a little more tested. Um, 
And you could say um, they had the credentials. So I would argue that they were early, but they ended up uh, stumbling along the way. And for various different reasons, some bad luck, some mistakes, and allowed others to pass them by. Well, before we get too deep into the weeds of the race for the vaccine, let's go back to basics here and talk about what is mRNA, the vaccines that have ended up being the ones that have been the most successful. Sure. So messenger RNA, mRNA is a molecule. We have it naturally inside us. It is tasked with delivering instructions from DNA to the part of the cell in which proteins are created. It tells our body what proteins to create um, to keep us alive. So it's essential. It's crucial. It delivers the instructions that we need to stay alive. And as such, scientists have always wanted to create DNA, I'm sorry, mRNA in the lab. In other words, sort of was the holy grail out there. What if we could create, synthesize, as it were, mRNA in the laboratory and deliver it to the body? In other words, send instructions, send, send a message to the body to create any kind of protein that we want. We could even maybe make the body into its own vaccine factory. That has always been the dream. And for years, scientists tried. And for years, there was skepticism. The conventional wisdom is don't waste your time on mRNA. It's a very unstable molecule. It gets chopped up within moments by the cell's enzymes, which is sort of ironic and almost um, um, and important to emphasize because there's so many people today that are wary of mRNA vaccines because they worry it's going to change our cells, change our DNA. No, <laughs> no one wanted to work with this stuff because it gets chopped up and eliminated so quickly. And again, for years, scientists tried and worked and, and made some progress and they, 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 they kept at it. They were stubborn and the conventionalism is don't waste your time. And yet my book is really about years of fascinating to me anyway, um, twists and turns along the way where these researchers made progress, hit stumbling blocks and, and continued on until we finally found these vaccines based on mRNA. So why were and who were these kind of unheralded, unknown scientists uh, who were behind the breakthrough? Tell us uh, the story. Let's just take one, the story of BioNTech and its founder, Ugar Sahin. Uh, explain who he is and what BioNTech was before it became attached to the name Pfizer and became, you know, a name we all now know. Sure. So uh, Ugar Sahin is a uh, Turkish-born cancer researcher, and he moved uh, to Germany, um, like other Turkish uh, immigrants around that time. And he and his wife, Aslam Turki, started a company called BioNTech, and the whole goal was to teach our immune system to fight off cancer. And for years, they worked at it. And they tried different methods. One of their methods was mRNA, using this molecule, creating it in a lab to send a message to the body. And for years, what they were doing was sending a message to the body to create a protein from cancer. And the whole idea of vaccines, and that's what they were trying to do is create a vaccine. The whole idea of vaccines is to teach the body, give the body an education, teach the body about a certain pathogen, a certain disease, a certain illness, a certain virus. And the way to do that is to focus on, to teach the body to create 
a certain protein often from that virus. And in, you know, in this case, the coronavirus, we teach the body to create the spike protein. But for years, Ugrasan and his wife were teaching the body to create uh, cancer proteins. And the idea is to teach the body to fight off cancer. And for years, they struggled to make much progress. They, they made little bits, little advances here and there, but nothing too dramatic. Um, but they were making progress on using mRNA to, again, use making a vaccine where you send a message, send instructions to the body to create a certain protein. And here they were in early 2020, and they got really nervous very early about a pandemic. Ugerstein in particular, he read a paper, he realized this is a respiratory disease. It likely will spread. Uh, they're asymptomatic. Um, evidence of, of people being asymptomatic and yet having the disease that scared him, you know, as opposed to reassuring that these people didn't have symptoms, it scared him because it suggested that it would spread. So he said, you know what, we've got this expertise in mRNA. We haven't really shown it to be effective. Uh, we haven't created any vaccines or, or any drugs, but we know how to make mRNA. Let's see if we can do it for this new virus and create a virus, create a vaccine to, to, to save people. And they reached out to Pfizer Originally, at first, the Pfizer um, senior scientists were wary of, of getting involved. They said, well, you know, these coronaviruses peter out. Let's not waste too much time. But Ugar Sahin convinced another senior scientist of Pfizer to work together, and they created, they, they developed these vaccines that are so protective and effective. So there's a telling a moment that you just uh, kind of moved quickly through there, which is, he first approaches Pfizer and they are not interested. And that's kind of what he was used to, right? I mean, he was used to the big players in the world, in the vaccine world, uh, thinking that he was something of a crank. How did, why did they first say no? And what did he do or what was happening in the world that changed that reflexive, uh, you know, no from Pfizer? Well, it's important to understand who this person is. He is a stubborn, um, self-confident, kind of quirky scientist. He and his wife live in an apartment still. Now, now they're billionaires, but they live in a, an apartment in Mainz, Germany. They bike to work. They don't own a car. They don't own a television. They are pure scientists. They go on vacation and they log computers and scientific papers and bring it to the pool. And um, they're, they come home and turn on the computers and go back to work and deep into the night. So these are people very dedicated to their approach and very convinced that messenger RNA was a solution. So yes, others were skeptical, including people at Pfizer. And again, the Pfizer people had right to be skeptical. If you remember about past coronaviruses, there's MERS, there's SARS. These things usually peter out. They don't last for very long. So for Pfizer to be skeptical, it made some sense. Why waste all this time and money and effort on a vaccine that may not be needed. And frankly, my book is all about efforts in the past on all kinds of viruses that Zika and others that we didn't need in the end. So Pfizer at first was wary about putting too much of an emphasis uh, on this virus. And frankly, I write about others, Merck. I mean, one thing that jumps out at me doing research for my book is that it should not have been Moderna and BioNTech and the people that I write about in my book that saved the world. It should have been the vaccine giants. I mean, Merck makes this, the MMR vaccine we're all familiar with, our kids get, get, get uh, mumps, measles, rubella. They should have been the ones to step up. Sanofi, GSK, they are the vaccine giants. And yet it were these outsiders like Moderna, like BioNTech, Ugar Sahin, Stefan Bensel, the CEO of, 
of Moderna, that really struck me as I was doing the research as quite surprising and, and startling even. So let's uh, let's pick up with uh, the Moderna story and tell that in parallel. Uh, its uh, CEO, Stefan Bensel, um, was known for uh, making a lot of, uh, you know, doing well with investors, but also had a toxic work culture, was widely despised by the people who worked for him. Um, who and what is Moderna? Sure. So Moderna is a company in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and they started out dedicated to mRNA. They were really focused. It's part of their name. Before anybody else, really, they were convinced that mRNA as a molecule could be created in the, in the lab to send a message to the body, to fend off illnesses and, and drugs and, and, and viruses, etc. And for years, they stumbled. And it was a very difficult work environment. Stefan Bensel was a fascinating, quirky, uh, unique kind of executive. He pushes his people really hard. So early on, literally his scientists, and I write about it in the book, they were collapsing at the office, in the parking lot, at home, hitting their heads, being taken to emergency rooms because he was pushing them so hard. And he had these high expectations and they weren't making enough progress. And he, to his, in his defense, he believed they had a solution that would uh, save the world even. He literally told his employees, there's going to be a crisis someday, someday and we're going to be the ones to step up, to create a vaccine or, or a drug to save people. And he was a visionary and he was um, he didn't suffer fools e easily and he still doesn't. Um, and it's not for everyone. And he was very difficult on people. There's a lot of turnover. People complained and were upset. And in the end, he was right in that he had a vision of, of a way to, to save lives. And um, they kept at it. And frankly, they, 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 there were all kinds of reasons to give up. They, they originally, they were called Moderna Therapeutics. Therapeutics is, a, is drugs. And, and they couldn't make drugs. They, they failed. They still have never been able to succeed in any way in, in creating a drug. But they shifted gears. And there's one young scientist responsible for that shift. And I write about it. And they said, okay, well, it's not working with drugs. Let's try vaccines. And they made some progress going into 2020, but even they, no one really expected them. People literally were thought that Bensel was exaggerating, maybe even lying, fabricating. Um, some people compared him to Elizabeth Holmes, the CEO of Theranos of, of infamy. So there were all kinds, there's all kinds of skepticism about Bensel and about Moderna going into 2020. And yet it's kind of startling. They're the ones among the most important reasons why we've got some, some normalcy in, in this world because they created an effective vaccine. What did Stefan Bansell and Moderna, when he first heard about a virus circulating, people getting sick in China, what made his ears burn about that? Yeah, so like Sahin at BioNTech, they were really worried and even scared in January of 2020. So were others within the company that I write about. There's a guy named um, Juan Andres, who's the head of manufacturing at Moderna. And I write about how he told his family, we're talking in January 2020, we have to stock up on tissues. We have to stock up on toilet paper. We have to buy a third refrigerator. And his family thought he was nuts. They, they rolled their eyes. Here you go again, kind of thing. And then a month later, his mother-in-law died of COVID, and 
Um, they realized, as the rest of us did, how serious this thing was by by March. And yeah, to, to their credit, all these um, executives and um, scientists that I write about in my book, they realized that this wasn't just another coronavirus. This was one that had a unique ability to spread. Um, again, asymptomatic cases were scary to them. It was a respiratory disease. They could see that it was um, lethal. There were early indications that they were picking up on that others didn't, that this was going to be a potential pandemic. And some actually predicted a pandemic. And they said, we're going to be the ones to step up and save people, even though people don't believe in mRNA, even though people don't believe in us. There was all this, this um most most people were, were convinced that Moderna and others were exaggerating their capabilities. And to their credit, they, they didn't listen to the, the skeptics. You describe a meeting at the White House with President Trump and Anthony Fauci is present at it in March 2020. So the uh, you know coronavirus is sort of just making itself known on the North American continent. And... Um, Explain what was what happened at that meeting and what these different actors were saying. So, uh, yes, uh, Donald Trump and the administration, they invited the leading scientists in the country working on different both drugs and vaccines to take on this new coronavirus to come to the White House and meet with Mr. Trump. And, and frankly, Mr. Trump really, I, I believe, his goal was to get some reassurance and to um to, to uh, maybe per, perhaps spur research to make sure there was something done quickly, done uh, ahead of the election, ideally. And um, to the, the researchers were really trying to um, convince or persuade uh, the administration and, and, and Mr. Trump that it's going to be a while. Don't get excited yet for a vaccine. It's not going to be available anytime soon. Because it made sense. Until then, historically, the average vaccine takes 10 years, and the fastest one ever was four years. That's months. So it made sense that even Dr. Fauci, who was there, and others kind of said, well, Mr. President, we're going to try our best, but there's no assurance that we can create something quickly. And yet, Stefan Bensel, the Moderna CEO, told Donald Trump, no, I I think we can do this pretty quickly. And what also was fascinating about that meeting is that the Pfizer executives were a couple senior um, executive scientists who were there, they went into the meeting mostly focused on a drug and not so confident they could create anything too quickly. And they looked around the room and, and the seriousness of the moment convinced them that actually there's a pandemic coming and we need to step up. So they took away from the meeting. It was almost just as important on the impact on them. And they became more convinced that something uh, serious was afoot and that they needed to go all out for a vaccine. You describe at that meeting that uh, Dr. Fauci, uh, you know, who has been for many Americans really the face, the trusted voice, although I suppose depending on what side of the political divide (laughs) you're on, whether he's trusted or not. um, uh, But he was skeptical of the kind of uh, pie in the sky, speedy development um, promises that uh, he was hearing from the likes of Stefan Bensel. What was Fauci's posture? How was he pushing back at that moment? Yeah, he um, let those at the meeting know. He reminded them that vaccines take a while and that 
there's no assurance that the early signs of um, of effectiveness that we're seeing in the Moderna vaccine, uh, there's no really assurance that that would lead to effectiveness in humans. There was some sign with with animals that their early vaccine, which they created very quickly, thanks to mRNA, which all you need is the sequence of a virus to be able to create the vaccine. Um, there was really no reassurance that it would be just as effective in humans. And, and frankly, one of, one of the things that just jumped out at me and, and surprised me is that, yeah, Moderna created this vaccine really early, but um, it was running out of money as a company. Remember, there was so much skepticism about them. So I think um, it wasn't clear they'd be able to produce enough vaccine. So for all those reasons, I think Dr. Fauci wanted um, the president and others to, to know that um, the, uh, the odds were against them. And yet Ben Sell and others persevered and, and, and ignored the skepticism and, and, and the caution. And, you know, in hindsight, it worked out really well. We have to be really thankful, I think, because it, it didn't have to go this way. We, we, we um, very easily could have been in, in a situation where the vaccine would have taken a couple years, even if it had taken two years to develop, that would have been record time. And, and uh, we, we would have been thrilled with that. So the fact that it, they were done so quickly and so effectively is really a modern day miracle. I think we're a little too close to it to, right now to appreciate. This is science's greatest achievement, I would argue, modern sciences at least. What was the secret that resulted in this unprecedented speed that uh, the mRNA vaccines in particular seem to achieve? Well, I think the secret is that there was a lot of hard work, imaginative work, innovative work, courageous work even done in the years leading up to 2020 that people on both sides of the spectrum, I don't think are sufficiently appreciative of, especially those who are wary of the vaccines. They say, and they worry, and, and, and I get the wariness. They say, well, you know, these vaccines were done so quickly, but part of the goal of my book is to show them and, and others that no, th there was years, literally decades of work. I mean, I start off, when it comes to mRNA, I start off with work done by a doctor named John Wolf uh, in Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin in the late 1980s, when he was one of the first, if not the first, to kind of say, you know what? There's promise with mRNA. I've shown that you can get some proteins created. Yes, not enough to really do much. Yes, it's going to take more help along the way. And he couldn't pull it off. And he sadly passed away um, la um, in, in the beginning of the pandemic, not due to COVID, due to cancer. But he was the, the pioneer. And it was almost like a, a relay race where he passed the baton to others. And, and I write about them. So I think that the, the secret answer, the answer to your question is that there was a lot of remarkable uh, innovative work done by fascinating, quirky, kind of stubborn scientists in the years leading up to 2020. So we were ready. We, we didn't know it at the time, but we were ready with mRNA and with the, the other approach, the adenovirus approach I write about, that led us to the J&J and the AstraZeneca vaccine. So no one knew it at the time. No one was sure it would be effective, but all that research paid off. The J&J &J shot has been also uh, remarkably successful, but not quite as effective as the mRNA vaccines, Moderna and BioNTech. Uh, do you, can you explain why that is? Well, it's also important to note, to rem remember that had we not had mRNA vaccines, then uh, we would be thrilled with J&J's uh, approach, which is not quite, you know, in the 90% um, 
effective, but it's, it's, it's quite close. Um, and it's, it's protective and it's, 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 it's safe. So, um, and it's one shot. So all kinds of great things about it. Uh, it's just a different approach. So it's using an adenovirus and adenovirus is a harmless virus. And the idea being you, you stick um, some genetic uh, message, uh, just like the mRNA is a genetic message. This one is the same genetic message. It's, it's basically telling the body to create the spike protein, which is the um, most characteristic feature of this, this virus. And you put it into this harmless virus. And you say to yourself, well, why am I injecting myself with a, with a virus? And <laughs> it's also interesting to note that the AstraZeneca one, you're injecting a chimpanzee virus. So you say, say why am I injecting myself with, with a virus? Well, for good reason. Viruses, their whole reason for being is to spread within the body. And because the scientists over the years there's a, a scientist named Dan, Dan Baruch in Boston who is responsible for it. And there are others I write about, Oxford Group um, in the UK for the AstraZeneca one. They figured out ways to make these viruses harmless. So, so yes, they get into the body and they spread their message to the cells, telling the cells to create whatever we want, in this case, the, the spike protein. But they're, they're harmless viruses, so we don't have to worry about them. And yeah, they're just not as effective. Historically, it's, it's been a good approach, um, not an amazing approach. It's not a great one for, for um, eventually the body kind of learns about this virus and fights it off. And so it doesn't spread the message like we would like. Um, so it's, it's a, but it's a very uh, effective and protective uh, vaccine nonetheless. Uh, Greg, I want to pick up with just on this idea of visionaries, um, this idea that when everybody's looking right, there's that one person who's looking left and seeing what others don't. What have you learned in your conversations with these trailblazers in the vaccine world? What was it about these people who were looking in a different direction than everyone else and that led them to these breakthrough discoveries? Yeah, it's fascinating. So, and there are a lot of life lessons too. Um, a lot of my book is about research that went on in deep in bowels of laboratories around the country and in Germany as well, but Cambridge, Massachusetts and Wisconsin and at Duke and um, other kinds of places. And part of it is a, a certain self-confidence. These people knew that if they could figure out a way to make mRNA work, send these messages into the body, it would open up a whole world. If you could send a message to the body to create any kind of protein you want, uh, who would you? Could, the, the, anything. The possibilities are endless. And and you know, shifting gears to the future, that now they're 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 doing all kinds of new approaches for things like cancer and MS and uh, other kinds of illnesses and diseases. So they, as opposed to focusing on why it wouldn't work or why it was unlikely to work, they focused on the the possibility. Please, they, they, what could, what worlds opened up if they could get it right? And instead of figuring, focusing on all the obstacles, they figured out ways to overcome those obstacles. And they thought maybe they, they could, and, and um, maybe you could call it overconfidence um, or just a, an abundance of self-confidence. And that's kind of what it takes to ignore the conventional wisdom. And it's not to say that in every case, one should ignore conventional wisdom. Um, sometimes it's, it's right to, to listen to the skeptics and to be cautious, but it's great knowing that um, in our labs, and there are researchers believing in, in what could be possible and willing to spend years. I mean, I, I admire, I learned so much from 
their patience, their persistence and the resilience. And can you imagine spending years on a method and then you, you, you don't make too much progress. There's very little evidence of it. You, people ask how much progress have you made and you can't like point to anything. I give them a lot of credit. Um, and, you know, also in your descriptions, your very colorful descriptions of these characters, they're eccentric. You know, uh, you're describing Ugar Sahin from Biontech uh, and his wife and, and how they go on vacation with their laptops. And Stefan Bonsell from Moderna, who's irascible, unlikable. Um, do you think that eccentricity and, you know, eccentricity is not necessarily the hallmark of people who succeed in the corporate world, in the big pharmaceutical companies. Um, I, I wonder if you can extend this to explain about, uh, you were beginning to talk earlier about the people who we didn't see, some of the big vaccine players who weren't in this race. What explains their absence? So it's a really interesting point. And um, yes, the characters in my book, who we owe so much to are very quirky and um, they can be difficult. They, um, I write about a lot of really um, um, hard um, uh, um, to please type executives, scientists who are just really harsh to each other. There's a guy, um, Adrian Hill from Oxford, who I write about, who's just despised within the world of science because he's so difficult. He gets up at conventions and conferences and just rips into his colleagues and peers how, how dumb their ideas were. Um, it's not going to lead to anything over and over again. I mean, I can, there are dozens of people within in my book that I write about that I'm not sure we all want to have a beer with necessarily, but um, we owe a lot to their persistence and their um, personalities maybe lend themselves, like you said, maybe it takes that kind of personality to ignore the skepticism and persevere. There's a, a individual named Luigi Warren, who we owe a lot to, who helped um, ma make the progress, the advances that led to um, Moderna and mRNA. And yeah, he quit. He got in fights with, with pretty much everyone, um, but he's brilliant as well. So in the, by contrast, like you said, who didn't make it? I'm not sure they don't have those kind of personalities within Merck necessarily, um, but Merck is one who I write about how they there was a divide within the company. And some people said, hey, let's focus on COVID-19. And others said, you know what, making a lot of progress elsewhere, including areas like cancer that we, we um, have to be appreciative of. And, and frankly, it's, it's, it's important to, to understand that vaccine work historically has not been very popular within the, the world of science. Um, we all focus on the famous vaccinologists, um, Sabin and others that um, produce things like polio. And we remember those stories where there was celebrating in the, in the streets and hugging and cheering. But historically, vaccine work um, takes forever. Again, the average vaccine takes 10 years. It's expensive. Sometimes you develop some vaccine and you can't even test it because the disease has gone away by then. And whereas a drug, you can give a drug every day, a statin you take every day, that kind of thing. So um, part of the reason the corporations uh, and others hesitated, I think, is because what, what if this COVID went away? Do, why are we wasting our time? There, we could be curing and helping people in other areas. Um, and Merck, to their credit, turns around and start working on a drug, which seems like it's like 50% effective. And hopefully that'll be helpful as well. So we have to um, give thanks to these irascible, difficult, uh, quirky scientists. I, I write about it in my book. I, I mean, I, I came to appreciate them. Mm. Now, 
BioNTech, this small company uh, led by Uber Sahin and his wife, um, teams with Pfizer, uh, a well-known global pharmaceutical brand. Moderna doesn't do that, right? Moderna goes out on its own with this vaccine. Um, explain, how did, how did this company, Moderna, without a proven track record in this area, come to produce a you know, mass-produced global vaccine? Well, it wasn't their first choice. They developed this vaccine, working with the uh, NIH scientists there. And they, in the spring of 2020, they went to look for a partner because, as you say, they were a little too small and they were worried about money. They were running out of cash and they knew it would cost billions to produce these vaccines. And it's important to remember the government did not give them money early on. Their first check, as I mentioned, was to the Oxford-AstraZeneca effort. And they, it was bothering, it was, it, was, it was really driving them nuts. I mean, again, it's Juan Andres, the one that was scared about the future and told his kids and family, hey, we have to get a third refrigerator. And they told him he was nuts. Um, he, he, he really wanted to start producing. Let's get going. Let, let's make these vaccines. We want to save people. We want to save lives. And they just didn't have the money. And Stefan Bansell is the consummate salesman. He'd spent his years, spent, he spent years raising billions of dollars for Moderna. And here he was in the most important moment of his life, and he couldn't raise the money. He went to the U.S. government. He went to nonprofits like the Gates Foundation, and, and he went to Merck. And he said, hey, let's work together, just like BioNTech and Pfizer are. Let's work together. And no one wanted to. Some people were wary of mRNA. Some people had resources that they had spent elsewhere in, in, the, in the pandemic, and they just didn't have anything available. So they were despondent within Moderna and they ended up, what they did was talking to an investment bank on Wall Street. And, you know, we're, we're quick to um, dismiss the work of big, bad, big, bad pharma and big, bad Wall Street. But, but they teamed up in this case and, and he raised a lot of money, um, Bansell and Moderna did, by working with Morgan Stanley and Morgan Stanley turned to investors. And, you know, it's interesting, it's important to note that investors played a huge role here and they finally got enough money. We're talking in May 2020. It wasn't sure that they would. And they just start spending it all and building these vaccines. But it was touch and go for a while. Who is actually making and distributing the Moderna vaccine? So they do it. And again, as you said, they're a small company. And you know, there's been a lot of criticism lately of them that they haven't shared their intellectual property abroad and they haven't sent more vaccines to needy countries, to, to uh, poor countries. Yeah, here we are talking about boosters and they're most of Africa, um, 97% or so, ha haven't received the first vaccine, which is um, just, just, just sad and, and, and um, discouraging for so many of us. But in, in their defense, they, they, there were people, there were countries, wealthy countries stepped up and wrote checks and bought up their supplies. And again, they're, they've been going, I've talked to people within Moderna they just just destroyed psychologically um, because they've been going out. We've been working twenty four seven for over a year. There are people I know with, with stage four cancer that go into the office and believe that it's, it's a, a mission on their part, and they they're trying to save lives. And they they feel they could have done more, and they're they're beating themselves up for not producing more. So in the end, this relatively small company had to do the same kind of work that Pfizer and BioNTech were doing, and they didn't really get enough, that much help. So. Um, it's, it, it was it, it, they're wealthy these these executives these scientists but they're also a, a mess um, psychologically I've, I've talked to a lot of them and they're trying to recover from this experience 
What do you mean? The the leaders who you profile, Ugar Sahin and, and Bansell, this has sort of affected their mental health? Yeah. I mean, Ugar Sahin's different because he teamed up, Biontech teamed up with Pfizer. And t- Pfizer's a huge, enormous company that had done trials after trials and manufactured drugs and vaccines. So that helped Biontech. And as a result, Ugar Sahin's focus right now is on the future and on creating vaccines for, for cancer and um, turning off the immune system for some things like autoimmune disease. And there are all kinds of possibilities and things that Ugar Sahin, who's the consummate researcher, is excited about. And I can't wait to see what he does. But when it comes to Moderna, because they were shorthanded, because they were a relatively small company, because companies like Merck didn't want to work with them, they've been overwhelmed by their mission. And there's yeah, they're focusing on other kinds of things. But I've talked to executives and they said their number one goal this year is to heal, to heal their employees, their staffers, their researchers who've just been going all out over the past year and feel some sense of responsibility and, and even guilt that they weren't able to, to produce more vaccines. Hmm. That's so interesting. We we don't hear that story, of course. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, what is next in terms of what other things might this technology that's been developed for COVID-19 and of course, we're not done with this yet. We're still learning, you know, the efficacy and the long-term durability of these vaccine. Um, but what is the promise uh, down the road for other diseases? So I'm um, optimistic. I'm hopeful. I'm not confident. I will explain why. Uh, for years, we've been trying to create mRNA and adenovirus uh, vaccines and, and drugs and we really haven't been able to. That's what made so it's so surprising that Moderna and BioNTech stepped up and saved the world over this past year. And, and there are different challenges. Um, they've made some progress in uh, a heart in heart disease. I think maybe we'll get some a drug there. But part of the problem is targeting specific areas of the body. mRNA. They haven't really proven be able, be able to do that. Um, but uh, and, and mRNA, as I said earlier, is an unstable molecule. It's not always easy to deal with it. There are all kinds of challenges. But I am optimistic. I mean, frankly, somebody like Ugar Sahin, all he cares about is science. He's plowing billions now that they've made from these vaccines with, with, with Pfizer. He's plowing it into new areas. And he's always his dream has always been cancer. Um, Dan Baruch, who helped create the J&J vaccine, his dream is always to solve, has been always to solve AIDS. Um, um, Adrian Hill in Oxford, malaria has been his passion. So what, what's amazing, what's remarkable is that, yeah, they've all helped create effective vaccines for COVID. And I write about them in the book, but their real passion is elsewhere. And if they can take some of these profits, which they're, they're doing now, and plow it into breakthrough research in these other areas, it'll be, it'll be almost, you could look back and say that it was, it was I don't want to say it's worthwhile, but there was a lot of good that came from this awful period. If we can solve MS, we can solve cancer, maybe make some progress on AIDS vaccine, those kinds of things. Uh, I'm really hopeful and optimistic for the future. Hmm. The title of your book is A Shot to Save the World, but the reality right now is we've developed a shot that is saving the Western world, but the uh, developing world has been lagging by orders of magnitude. Um, Talk about vaccine inequity and and what this means going forward and how that gap gets closed. Yeah, it's awful. And it's not just awful on a moral, in a moral sense. It's awful for us all because it allows the virus to keep changing um, new strains, new variants, 
And that's what viruses do. And the only way we can really get past this, this pandemic, this virus is and get back to normalcy or true normalcy is if we can get most of the world vaccinated. And I'm, you know, setting aside the, the vaccine uh, wariness on the part of Americans who have access to the vaccine. You've got so many parts of the world that still don't have access. And part of that, just, there's just so many vaccines you can produce. Um, and part of it is just the fact that um, it's been way too slow in, in getting uh, vaccines over there. I'm, I, I am getting a little more optimistic because I'm um, I think there's going to be another vaccine from a company called Novavax that is easier to transport, easier to store. Part of the problem with the mRNA vaccines is they have to be kept in cold temperatures and in Africa and some of these other places, you just don't have that kind of storage capability. But this Novavax vaccine is a different kind of vaccine. It's called a protein subunit. Um, I write about that as well. And they're, they're a little dinky company, unexpected and unlikely in Maryland that had failure after failure and failure, but they have created what looks like perhaps the, the most effective and protective of all the vaccines. And it doesn't have to be stored the same kind of way in the cold temperatures and doesn't have um, some other drawbacks. So, and they're close to being ready to manufacture and to send around the world. It won't be enough to really solve the problems in Africa right away, but slowly, um, I'm hopeful over time, they will have an impact. What do you think about the whole issue of intellectual property, of sharing, you know, the a technology to make it more accessible. Um, talk a little bit about that when it comes to these COVID-19 vaccines. Yeah. So it's a difficult situation because literally investors spent billions and billions of dollars over, over for, for over a decade on the hopes of getting a payoff down the road. And we don't want to discourage that in the future. Um, we want there to be an ecosystem in the United States that it lends itself to these kinds of bets th that might have a payoff down the road. And frankly, I've talked to Uber Sahin and Stefan Bansell and all kinds of executives who were born in other countries. And they say, there's no way these vaccines could have been developed were it not for these American investors. You just don't have them elsewhere. And you need to have a payoff down the road for these kinds of people. It's also the case that um, if you hand it over the intellectual property to, to companies, to others, to bodies, government bodies elsewhere, it's not clear they could create effective protective vaccines. I mean, again, my book is ta talks all about the challenges to not just developing vaccines, but you have to deliver them into the body. In other words, you create a vaccine that works in the lab and, 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 and one-off kind of thing, but um, to, on a consistent basis, get it into the body and um, into the to the cells to create the necessary proteins. It's really difficult. They spent years on this delivery challenge, and manufacturing mRNA is itself a real challenge. It all has to be uh, of equal quality and, and sufficient elsewhere. And frankly, this company Novavax they created a really amazing vaccine, but the manufacturing challenges have hobbled them, and they're not ready to go yet. And it's been months and months we've been waiting only because of the manufacturing challenges. So to say, well, we should just hand over the intellectual property to bodies outside the country and expect them to make effective, protective vaccines that are safe, um, you, you hold your breath a little bit whether they are able to. But um, we're now at the point where they've made so much money, these companies like Moderna and, and BioNTech, where they really do need sh to shift. And we, we as, a, as in the West, have to rethink, I, th I believe, on whether we should be so focused on, on boosters and instead maybe forgoing some of those and sending them abroad. Hmm. Um, President Trump used to talk about 
Operation Warp Speed, how that was so crucial to speeding these vaccines. But Pfizer-BioNTech didn't take money from Operation Warp Speed. I wonder if you could assess the effectiveness and the impact of the federal government's role in the development in this race to develop the COVID-19 vaccine. So I think warp speed was very helpful. Uh, I think uh, some on the right overstate the value and some on the left understate it. Um, so Pfizer Biotech did take a lot of money from the government, but it wasn't for research on these vaccines. They were specific and, and, and not in conscious about not taking that money, but they did sell their vaccine ahead of time to the government for billions of dollars. And that was helpful money, helpful uh, in, in the development of it. Um, I, I think the money was helpful. Again, again, it came a little late for Moderna. So for Moderna, it wasn't nearly as as, as required and necessary as maybe for some other uh, other vaccines like like Oxford. But um, warp speed was also help, helpful in other in other ways, not just financially. There were resources. There were back then. Remember, the country was closed down, and literally, there's a general Perna who doesn't get enough credit who helped run warp speed. He was closing bridges and uh, opening up tunnels and getting little pieces that Moderna needed um, so it could manufacture some of its vaccines. So listen, there was years of work, and that's what I write about in my book, of, of groundbreaking revolutionary work that led to these vaccines. And the government had nothing to do with that, or at least Warp Speed had nothing to do with that. Um, there were government grants, obviously, and government scientists and NIH who were helpful. But So you don't want to overdo it in terms of the value that Warp Speed had, but in terms of writing checks and in terms of these resources last year, uh, it did prove very helpful. What will it take to extinguish the threat of the COVID pandemic? So I'll give you some bad news and some good news. The bad news is this is not going away. It's going to be endemic. It's going to be one of these things that we deal with. There'll be parts of our country and obviously other parts of the world where it crops up. And um, unfortunately, people really will become effective. It'll remain lethal. Um, and, and that's sad. Um, so it's not going to go away anytime soon. But um, I do think that um, these vaccines obviously are, are protective and, and effective, but there are new ones coming, second and third generation vaccines that will make things this a lot easier to deal with. We'll go into a doctor's office, I think, in a couple of years and get a COVID vaccine with other things, maybe an all-in-one with, with a flu vaccine, perhaps, with other kinds of things. Um, there'll be more effective vaccines then these are, are really effective, but they'll be better, fewer side effects. They're going to keep improving. And um, it, eventually it sort of melts into the background in society. We already have four other coronaviruses that cause the common cold. And it'll be that kind of thing where, oh, yeah, I got the coronavi this coronavirus and I got sick of it, but we're developed. We have new drugs that are coming as well. That'll be helpful. Um, these vaccines we're going to take maybe you know, they'll be able to adjust them to deal with new variants. So I, I do think eventually in, in the near future, we get past this. You've described the COVID-19, you know, the development of the COVID-19 vaccine as maybe the greatest scientific uh, accomplishment of our modern times. And yet in this country, we see, uh, you know, in conservative and Republican circles, it is identified as the enemy. It is identified as the thing that you should not take. And um, there's astonishingly high numbers when you look at the breakdowns of, you know, along political lines of Republicans, particularly middle-aged Republican men who simply refuse, something like 40% refuse to get the vaccine. 
Did you see this coming in any way? What do you, how do you reflect on that? Oh, I was really naive about this. I remember predicting that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Once, once they get authorized, once they get approved, everyone's going to take these vaccines. Who wants to walk around without protection? And I couldn't have been wrong. Listen, my explanation is that everything today is politicized. Everything. And it's so sad. It's everything's almost tribal. My team, your team, my family, your against your family. I, I did a book a few years ago called The Frackers. And um, it's about this revolution where we started producing oil and gas all over the country. We went from a country that was desperate for, for energy to one that's ex- exporting it. And I got to go to little towns in Oklahoma, North Dakota, and Pennsylvania, and, and Louisiana, Texas, et cetera, and sit down and talk to people. And you realize that we have a lot more in common than you would think. And I just don't think we have an opportunity anymore to have the exchange of views and sit or have a beer with someone and get to know each other. And there's this demonization and okay. Oh, oh so, so the left likes vaccines. Well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to like vaccines as a result. And it's so sad. And um, it's discouraging. I, you know, that I talked to the researchers who created these vaccines and they're, can you imagine you, you, this is your life's work and you, destroyed yourself over the past year. Psychologically, you're damaged to create these vaccines and yet people won't take them. And they'll take a drug that they don't have no clue the genesis of that drug, but this one they're wary of and they, they, they go on Facebook and they refer to a YouTube video as opposed to their own internist who they've, they've relied on for, for, for years. Yeah, it's, it's discouraging for me and, and for those who I've interviewed for my book. Hmm. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, Greg Zuckerman, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Oh, that was a lot of fun. Thank you. Greg Zuckerman is a reporter for the Wall Street Journal. His new book is A Shot to Save the World, The Inside Story of the Life or Death Race for a COVID-19 Vaccine. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all programs at vtdigger.org slash vermontconversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.